And welcome everybody to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at uh, Wright Council and Skeen in Baltimore. Today I'm joined by Mr. Rocco Vespi, PE, a principal with HKA Global. Say hello to everyone, Rocco. Hello everyone and thanks for joining in. Okay, as you know, Surety Today is offered only to in-house claims professionals and is designed to keep the busy Claims professionals up to date and informed on surety industry issues. And we really appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. Uh, we also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. I say this every month and I gotta say, I'm not getting a lot of social media love from everybody. I'm not getting too many likes and shares. So we'd love to see that uh, improve. If you miss a live presentation, you can listen to a recording at multiple locations, our Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at iTunes, uh, Google Music, uh, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today uh, and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. If you, if you have any suggestions for future topics, interviews, or improvements, please let us know. We've been doing this now for about three and a half years, and we need some help getting uh, new topics and interview suggestions from folks, so please help out. As always, we have muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Before we get started, we need to take a moment to properly introduce our guest, Mr. Vespi, for those of you who do not already know him. What makes Rocco a fantastic consultant is the fact that for 20 years, he worked as a general contractor, and for the last 20 years, he's worked in claims. He's also a registered professional engineer in six states. He has that, that great blend of experience and technical knowledge and practical hands-on knowledge. Uh, he still, in fact, provides construction management services for project owners uh, even today. As I mentioned, he's a, a principal with HKA Global, one of the world's leading consulting expert and advisory companies with 45 offices in 21 countries and over 960 professionals. Now, Rocco works out of the Philadelphia office. He's been involved with practically every type of construction project you can imagine, and he's been qualified and testified as an expert witness at state and federal courts on numerous <coughs> occasions on behalf of all different players in the industry. Rocco has co-authored textbooks such as Construction Estimates from Takeoff to Bids, The Construction Process from Start to Finish, and Managing Construction Projects. So he literally wrote the book. He also has written articles as well as developed and taught seminars nationally on project management, claims avoidance, risk management, alternative contracting methods, change order management, and partnering. In 2010, he was inducted as a fellow of the Construction Management Association of America, and he's a member of uh, that association's National Committee for Standards of Practice. So not only has he written the book, he's written the standards too. So I'm thrilled uh, to be joined today by, by Rocco, and without further ado, let's get started. Um, today, we are continuing our discussion on uh, the surety and delay claims. Last month, uh, Rich Pledger and I discussed the legal aspects of delay claims. And today, we'll touch on such issues as what is the difference between a retrospective and prospective delay analysis? How can a contractor manipulate data to support its delay claim? And where should you start in reviewing a delay 
delay claim. So Rocco, let's get started though with the basics. You know, what what it talk to us about what is a schedule, what does it consist of, how is it made, what's its purpose? You know, let's let's hit up the basics. Okay, thank you, Mike, and thanks for the great introduction. Uh, a simple way of looking at it is a schedule is basically a roadmap through the construction of a project. Uh, typically, it's put together by a contractor or an owner to identify the activities and logic relations for those activities for the work on a project. Uh, a proper way to prepare a schedule, if you're using some type of a schedule software, is to first lay out all the activities and durations and then run the schedule and see what the end date is. And if the end date is not the same end date as you're contractually bound to, then you have to go back and look at the schedule again and try to figure out ways to overlap activities, shorten durations, and so on. The major uh, value of a CPM schedule is that it, it identifies the critical path of work. And for those of you that, that may not be familiar with critical path, critical path is simply the longest path of activities that determine the end date of the project. And uh, what you'll hear me talk about as we go along here as critical delays are delays to the critical path. And given that uh, uh, durations and sequences of on the project of the activities are on that critical path, it's the only those activities that can, that can delay the completion of the project. And we'll talk about that some more. Contractually, most contracts today require some type of a schedule. Back in the days when I first started in construction, all they needed was a bar chart that showed all your activities. But nowadays, CPM scheduling has become more popular for many reasons. So some type of a CPM schedule is, is required on most projects. Once again, CPM means critical path method schedule, and it's the longest path of work that determines the completion of the project. So how do we do this? Well, the software is a mechanism that processes the information uh, about each activity and the logic between the activities and the durations of these activities. And through the software, it prints out a, a listing of all the activities and the, the start and finish dates for those activities. For those of you that may have looked at a, a schedule printout, you'll notice that it includes the, the, the early start date, which is the date that it, the earliest an activity can start, the late start date, which is the latest that activity can start without affecting the critical path, the earliest finish date, which is the earliest date that, a, that an activity can finish, and the late finish date, which is the latest that that activity can finish without affecting the critical path. Activities on the critical path will have the same late early start and early finish and the same late start and late finish. Okay, The difference between the early start and the late start or the early finish and the late finish is float. And very simply, what float means is that there is a time period between when, a, when an activity 
can start and must start, and it's that float that allows a contractor to be able to manage the project and focus on the critical activities and understand that they can allow some of those other activities that aren't on the critical path to float in terms of time when they need to start. That's the value of a critical path schedule. And that critical path schedule, if it's done right, will be a valuable tool in helping to manage the completion of the work on the project. Rocco, is it, is it accurate to say that the critical path might change over time during the course of the project? Yes, depending on, the, depending on the performance of the activities, it's very possible for an activity that once had float, if the start or finish date slips, to now become the critical, a critical activity. It basically overtakes the activities that are on the longest path. So by virtue of a, the performance of the activities, you can have a change in critical path. So like what would be an example of that? Can you think of one that you've run okay. into? Okay, uh, let me give you a good example. Most projects have two paths, uh, most building projects have two paths sort of coming out of the box. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a steel structure, the procurement and design of the steel is on the critical path. However, the steel can't be set until the foundations are in. So also right out of the box, there'll be a critical path that is the installation of the foundation. So what that means is that as long as the steel gets to the project before the foundations are completed, then the foundations are controlling. However, if in fact the foundations are ready, but the steel is, don't show up, now the steel becomes on the critical path. Okay? Okay, what, what about float? We hear sometimes people arguing about who owns the float. What does that mean? Okay, the, the argument over who owns the float really means that uh, the contractor feels that they're the ones that have the leeway and be able, being able to schedule activities that have float, whereas the owner also feels that they can take advantage of that same leeway. So there's always an argument as to who owns the float and who eats up the float in order to make an activity critical. The general rule in most contract specifications is that the float is owned by neither party, but it's available to whoever needs it first. Okay. Well, let's 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 move through. Walk us through a a typical delay claim. Uh, what's it comprised of? How's the contractor calculate its damages and determine the length of its delay? Okay. Very simply, a delay claim is a claim for additional time that it takes in order to perform an activity or to perform the overall contract work. Okay. And delay claims are comprised of basically three components. And those three components are not always well prepared or well presented by the contractor or owner in this case, because uh, some of it's easier to do than others. There's three basic components that you need in order to be successful in a delay claim. 
first of all, you need to show entitlement that somebody delayed you by way of their actions or inactions. And the reasons why those delays caused impact. So along with proving entitlement to a delay claim, you also need to, to uh, calculate the number of days of delay, and then you calculate if there's an impact, the damages that go with that delay. So in order to calculate the number of days of delay, Usually, a contractor will rely on some type of a delay analysis using the schedule updates. And as we get further along, I'll talk about uh, the pros and cons of doing that. But the contractor will present a delay analysis based on the updates, and the contract language may or may not include uh, instructions on how that contractor needs to be able to prove that delay. Most of the time, they're required to insert some type of a fragnet, which is a short fragnet of activities, and insert that into the schedule to determine how much of an impact that has on the end date. So that's the mechanical calculation of the number of days, okay? Then the contractor has to, or owner, has to show how that delay impacted the work. And the impacts come in a few different flavors. Sometimes the impacts come as a cause of inefficiency because they were delayed and couldn't do the work the way that they planned. Sometimes the, uh, the damages uh, are calculated based on the additional time, and that additional time brings with it additional costs for field overheads and additional costs for home office overheads. So for those of you that have seen a delay claim, you may see damages typically calculated for the number of days of delay. And that's one of the reasons why contractors like to submit delay claims, because if a project is delayed 100 days and you have field overhead and home office overhead, a daily rate gets multiplied by 100 and the numbers can get very large very fast. The other, the other categories of delay, like inefficiencies or uh, work out of sequence, they're a little bit more difficult, and contractors sometimes have a tough time presenting, especially inefficiencies, because in order to prove an inefficiency case, you have to first prove efficiency that you were able to do the work efficiently in the first place. Okay. Now, just one of the, ca one of the categories that you've probably seen when someone submits a delay claim is the application of the Eichley formula to calculate the home office daily cost. I think it's important that you know that the Eichley formula is an approximation technique that was used in the case in order to, in order to uh, assign the portion of the home office overhead that was not absorbed, in other words, not paid for, because a project was delayed. So Eichley calculates unabsorbed office overhead. What that means is that when the contractor bid that job, he relied on in, uh, income to offset the cost of his home office overhead. If a project's delayed or suspended and they're not able to build the work, then that contribution 
to offset the home office overhead is not there. So uh, it's important that you look at that, that, that category as unabsorbed home office overhead. As to inefficiency, the most uh, persuasive method to measure inefficiency is called the measured mile analysis. A measured mile analysis is simply a comparison of how you would have done the work and how much profit you would have made before the impact compared to how you had to do the work and how much money you made because of the impact. And a good example of that or a quick example would be, let's say that you're a curbing contractor that has to install 10,000 feet of curb. And you start out on the job and you're able to regularly install 500 feet of curb a day with a five-man crew. Not all of a sudden, the architect or engineer comes out and says, you know, we want to add driveways to this curb. So what was originally a 10,000 feet run now becomes a bunch of short runs with driveway breaks in it. Now when you go to do the work with that same five men, you're only able to do 400 feet a day. That's an inefficiency caused by an impact. That's typically the best way to, to present an inefficiency claim. Unfortunately, inefficiency claims are difficult to present because usually the productivity out in the field is not something that's measured regularly. Okay, we got to move on. So let me talk about retrospective and prospective delay analysis. And this is, this is important. This is very important because uh, you need to understand that a prospective delay analysis is an analysis that's based on the, the schedule updates and the contractor's schedule. So basically what the uh, prospective analysis does is after you submit a fragnet, it applies that fragnet to the logic of the work that's left, and that calculates the possible delay to the project that might occur. All right. Sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't really happen. And the reason that you need a way to do a prospective delay analysis is because you have to have a way to evaluate the predicted future impact of changes. It's something that's defined in the contract as one of the ways to do it. However, it can be flawed, especially if the logic of the remaining work is flawed. So in a way, you're measuring delay with the yardstick that the contractor prepared that may not really be an accurate schedule. So you're measuring delay with a, with a yardstick that, that may be flawed. A retrospective analysis. Yes. Rocco, when you're talking about the logic, let's let's focus in on that a for a minute. You're saying that the contractor creates a schedule, and that the the, the, the paths of the work that are that need to be performed are connected by this concept of logic, and that 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 the control of how you define that logic can also then result in what that schedule is going to look like. So talk about the logic and and how that's manipulated. Okay, let let me give you a good example. Okay. Uh, you might see a foundation, the foundation logic in a schedule that says that, okay, I have to do all the excavation before I start any of the concrete installation. 
okay? However, that may not be what really has to happen. You may be able to start the concrete installation after you've dug half the foundations, okay? So a contractor will typically put in the preferred logic because in a way it gives them a little bit of a cushion in order to be able to mask or hide some of their own delays and still get the foundations in on time. Those are the kinds of things that are sometimes hidden in the schedule logic that become a factor when you do a prospective delay analysis. The more powerful, more, more realistic schedule analysis, especially if the delay analysis is being submitted after the project is done, is to compare what actually happened, the actual durations of the activities, to the planned schedule. And they call that an as-built analysis. As-built analysis are typically stronger than an analysis based on the schedule because you don't, the contractor knows that logic and he knows all the different toggles and things that they can do with the computer to put things in that are uh, logic relations that are very complex, uh, start no earlier than, finish no earlier than, and so on. And because they've done the schedule, you'll never know how, how, how sophisticated that logic is unless you have another analyst go in and do that. So it's, it's, it's very difficult for uh, you know, the other side to understand the baseline schedule if the schedule is loaded with a whole lot of uh, complex relationships. Okay, that's, that's the logic of a schedule. All right, and, and I think that leads, okay. into, uh, leads into the topic of how a contractor can manipulate data well, they can manipulate data by they're the ones that update the schedule and they're the ones that put in the starts and finishes of activities. And whenever we do an analysis, we verify those starts and finishes by going back and looking at the daily reports because a lot of times contractors will report an activity done that's not really done. And by reporting that activity done, it skews the updates and it, it makes it easy for a contractor to do some manipulation. I'm sorry, I cut off your question. No, that was the question, yeah. Okay. Um, so what are, what are some other ways? I mean, they, they, can, they can put in bad data, and then I think to manipulate the schedule, they can also, they can also change the logic or, or, or modify it in, in ways to make the delay seem, seem more pronounced. Is that something you see? Yeah, yeah, that's something to see. Yeah, another common one is to sand back time into activities. In other words, in order to prevent float, they can schedule an activity for twice the duration they know it's actually going to take. So not only do they have float, but they also have a big cushion in the performance of that activity. And that's very common. So when, when you review a schedule, if you have the opportunity to review the initial schedule, you need to be looking at especially the critical path to make sure that it makes sense and also make sure that the, that the, the 
durations of the activities on the critical path and how those activities are linked together logically are correct. Because contractors will sometimes load the schedule with a lot of activities that possibly can become critical only so that there won't be a whole lot of, uh, they'll, have an, uh, they'll have a way to mask poor performance of an activity. Okay, and that goes back to my to, that goes back to my statement that you know in order to really review a schedule, your scheduler needs to have some familiarity with how that type of a project gets built. Okay, you just can't have a scheduler that knows the programs and knows knows how to work the the software. You really need an analyst that knows how the how a project gets built because there's a critical path of every project whether you have a schedule or not. For example, a building job, you know that first they have to dig the hole, then they have to put the foundations in, then they have to put the structure in, then they have to close the building in, then they do the interior. I mean, buildings are very simple. Uh, roadway jobs are very simple. You kind of know where the path should be. And when you have a delay analysis that shows the critical path going into something that doesn't look like it should be critical, then you have to be suspicious that there's something wrong with that analysis. Okay, so, so where should a surety claims handler start in reviewing delay claims? When you talk about looking at the path and making sure it makes sense and having okay. some general familiarity with that type of project, what are some other things? Okay, quick, fast story. When I first made the conversion from a contractor to a delay analyst and claims consultant, my boss handed me a contractor's claim. He said, Rocco, review this claim and let me know when you're ready to talk about it. I said, okay. I took a few days, reviewed the claim, went in to talk to him. I started telling him that I thought the contractor was entitled to this or he might be entitled to that. And he said to me, well, what's the contract say? And you could have heard a pin drop. Because I didn't, I didn't do the one thing that's probably the most important starting place in any type of dispute, and that is read the contract. See what the contract says about delays, what types of delays are excusable, how should the contractor approve a delay, what kind of information does he need, is there a, does he use frag nets, do they, does the delay have to be based on the current update, uh, all that, if it's a well-written spec, should be in there. You'll also see that a lot of times owners like to cover themselves by putting in the famous no damage for delay clause. And the no damage for delay clause, even though it's a defense that owners like to take, it's not necessarily going to hold up in all jurisdictions. So after you've studied your contract, then the next thing you need to do is to see if you can find out what really happened and what the delays were on the project before you look at this analysis that the contractors or the other side has done. And my suggestion would be go to some contemporaneous documents like monthly reports or um, uh, meeting minutes, because if the project is sincerely delayed, first of all, you're going to be, they're going to be talking about that at the meeting minute, at the meetings. And secondly, it's going to be an entry, it should be an entry in any type of monthly report. Typically, when there's a 
significant actual delay on the project and the parties all know about it, some type of action gets done in order to try to mitigate that. And you'd be surprised at some of the things that can be done in order to minimize delays. I would try to find out either from somebody that was there or monthly reports or meeting minutes, what really were the delays on this project? And then I would look at the delay analysis and I would first examine the critical path of the original schedule to make sure it made sense because it's that critical path that's going to be used as the basis for proving any kind of a critical delay. And keep in mind that only delays to the critical path can delay the end date of the project. Now, it's possible for there to be a delay of the critical path just through one subcontractor's work. For example, your concrete contractor may be delayed, but the overall project not be delayed. So you'd have to look then at the critical path through the concrete contractor schedule. So those are the, those are the, the tips I would, I would suggest when you first get the claim. And you know, read it and see if it makes sense to you. And you know, if they're complaining about something that's relatively obscure, that caused a huge delay, because they can support it with the updates, beware that they haven't done something to either load that up, load, load that schedule with incorrect logic or tricky logic, or they've manipulated the information to, that they use to do the updates. Okay. And, and, and that goes back to the, the critical uh, aspect of asking for the schedule in the native format and not getting like a PDF of the schedule because you won't be able to, to see the, the internal logic of the schedule without getting the schedule in a way that you can look at the original um, underlying framework and logic of it. That's exactly right. We always ask, we always ask for the native updates because those, those, then you can tell what they did and you can compare those native updates. There's software out there, there's a Fuse and there used to be one called Claim Digger where you can actually compare the two updates to be able to see if the contractor made changes to the logic from update to update. You can't figure that out when you only have PDFs because the PDFs don't show you that logic. So it becomes, it becomes tricky. Now, I just want to make one comment. Uh, 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 one of my colleagues and I made a presentation at CMAA a couple years back, and it was called Delay Analysis, Is It Helpful or Is It uh, um, Black Magic? And uh, sometimes I think that the industry has gotten so involved in the complex types of schedules that you can easily do with the new softwares that it's made sorting out schedules and evaluating delay analysis so tricky that it's become almost like a cottage trade to be able to sort out delays on a project. That's why when I do delay analysis, uh, if I don't think the schedules make sense, I suggest to my client that we actually look at what happened and do some type of an as-built versus as-planned analysis because it's difficult to argue with reality. All right, Rocco. Well, thank you very much for this discussion. We probably could go on all day. Um, and, and if we had handouts, we could get into even more detail. 
but I appreciate your time and uh, and your knowledge and expertise. Uh, the meeting notice, or the yeah, the notice of this uh, uh, presentation that we sent out to everyone by email has the uh, contact information for Rocco. So if you need a, if you need an expert with his expertise, then uh, reach out to him, give him a call. So before I open up the lines, just quick, uh, Monday, November 11th is the uh, next surety today. Uh, we've got a PSCA, PSCA lunch on November 13th. That's uh, in Philly with Rich Tasker. Uh, the Chicago surety claims lunch will be October 17th. The Atlanta surety claims lunch is November 14th. So I uh, hope everybody can get out to those. Thanks so much for joining us today. I look forward to speaking with you again next month. Now I will open up the lines for any questions. This is now in talk mode. Okay, do we have any questions today? Anybody? Well, thank you for tuning in on Columbus Day. And uh, like I said, we'll Look forward to talking to you next month. Thanks very much, everybody. I'll, I'll make this offer, Mike. If anybody has a question and they think of it later, feel free to contact me. My web, my email is going to be on the ad, and uh, I'll, be, I'll be glad to talk to you about a project that you have and tell you whether I can be of help or not. Thank you.